0: Today's episode of Recovery Survey is fueled by Brainwash Coffee Company. I'm sure you've heard that drug and alcohol use is on the rise, especially during the pandemic. And Brainwash Coffee Company is working to raise money and awareness to support people seeking help. They donate 50% of their profits and their mission is to give back to the amazing recovery community. Their why is bold and their coffee is fresh. So if you want to sip on an amazing brew that warms your mind, body, and soul, to visit BrainwashCoffeeCo.com and use promo code Recovery Survey at checkout to get $5 off your first order. Brainwash Coffee Company, simple coffee for complicated people. You're listening to Recovery Survey, the podcast that shatters stigmas around different types of addictions and takes a deep dive into spiritual principles.
1: The whole idea of the addictive cycle that when you start using a drug, it creates its own need to use more. That's the critical thing. That's what's really important to keep in mind that if if you do something, and instead of feeling satisfied after you do it, you feel more of a craving to do more of it. That's what addiction is all about
0: my guest today is named Dr. Joseph Volpicelli. He is the executive director at the Institute of Addiction Medicine. Welcome to the show, Dr. Joe.
1: Yeah, so my name is uh, Joe Volpicelli. I've been involved with um, the recovery community for 40 years now, but uh, on the side of uh, trying to understand the cause of addictions and, and how to effectively treat them, I guess I got my start uh, way back in the late 1970s when I was a, uh, a medical student. I was in the MD PhD program at University of Pennsylvania, and at the time I was doing research on the effects of stress and diseases. I had some theories about how uncontrollable trauma can increase stress and and make you at risk for a variety of diseases, including depression, anxiety disorders even susceptibility to get physical diseases like cancer. At, the, at that time, I was also doing rotations at the VA hospital where I was working with uh, patients who had problems with addictions. And I remember one day I had a, a patient who was uh, addicted to alcohol and he was going through terrible withdrawal symptoms. And on rounds, I came around with my attending physician, some of the other residents, and I was pretty full of myself, being an MD PhD student, and um, I was describing my patient to the uh, to the other doctors there and giving him, giving them my theories about how stress causes addiction and alcohol problems. And the poor guy who's in bad withdrawal called around and slapped me. <laughs> <laughs> and actually, it was a good thing because uh, I needed that at the time because uh, I had a chance to talk with him after. The, the rounds and as he recovered, and he was telling me his story about how he was a, a veteran, a Vietnam veteran. And when he, he when he was in Vietnam, he was using uh, heroin. but when he came back to United States, he switched from heroin to uh, alcohol. And you know, he said he was using that to, to help him cope with uh, all the trauma associated with uh, his experiences there. Mm. And I went back and I looked at uh, my rat research. And uh, I was giving my rats uncontrollable trauma and looking at how that affected alcohol drinking. And I found another sort of surprising finding that the rats would drink alcohol after stress, after trauma, not during it, but afterwards. So sort of the weekends were made for Michelob or the, the happy hour effect. And so it changed my whole thinking about what causes addiction and, and how to effectively treat it, that there's a relationship between stress, endogenous opioids, alcohol drinking, and they're all interrelated. And um, I came up with a model of how to effectively help the rats reduce their alcohol drinking post-stress by blocking their opiate receptors with a medicine called naltrexone. And after I got my MD PhD degree, I went back and did a residency at Penn. And, and then following that, I did research in the veterans. So I went back to to the veterans and I wanted to give something back to the community. I I learned so much and they invited me to share their stories. And I felt compelled to be part of the group to to help understand the addiction and to help treat folks. And what I found was that people who were in our alcohol treatment program, about half of them would wind up relapsing within the first uh, 30 days, 60 days of treatment, and I wanted to reduce the relapse rates. And I found that uh, if I gave them naltrexone, I could dramatically reduce the relapse rates. And I did a placebo-controlled double-blind study and showed that indeed the naltrexone worked better than placebo. And other centers replicated the findings and we submitted the data to the FDA and the medicine got approved. But all that was back in the 1990s. And so we had a really good effective medicine that could help folks but it wasn't really being applied very much. I found also that the medicine worked best when people took the medicine. And so I designed a psychosocial treatment to help engage people in treatment and to stay in treatment. I, I helped train clinicians how to use that. And, and all in all, we found that we could really effectively help people recover and, and keep them in recovery, but that wasn't really being applied in the, uh, in the field. And so in uh 2008, I left Penn to set up uh, the Volpecelli Center and the Institute of Addiction Medicine to to help show how these evidence-based treatments could be applied in clinical practice. So that's what I've been up to. And I continue to do teaching and research and helping to work with patients to, to get better.
0: Wow. That's so fascinating, man. And, and thank you for the work that you're doing for the recovery community and, and the veteran community. And I'm just, I'm blown away by just your giving spirit and trying to help those that are, that are struggling with substance use disorder, man. I, I really do appreciate your work. Well, thank you. So we had talked a little bit before we started recording and we were talking about prescription drugs, fentanyl. Um, I would love to kind of dive into that a little bit further. If, if you're all right with that, maybe we can start off with, you know, how to, maybe some of the early signs of using prescription drugs, maybe a little too much when like, where, where's that line of
1: taking it as prescribed versus falling into addiction? Yeah. So a lot of times people ask me, you know, when is something, uh, an addiction? And one of the things I learned from the addiction community is that the notion of you know, one drink is not enough and a hundred is, excuse me, one drink is too many and a hundred drinks is not enough. The whole idea of the addictive cycle that when you start using a drug, it creates its own need to use more. That's the critical thing. That's what's really important to keep in mind that if, if you do something and instead of feeling satisfied after you do it, you feel more of a craving to do more of it. That's what addiction is all about. And uh, so if someone gets a prescription medicine, an opiate to treat pain, and it takes the pain away, and then your desire to use opiates goes down, and then as the cause of the pain goes away, you no longer need the opiates, then that's not an addiction, and that's an appropriate use for, for pain meds. But often what happens is that using the opiates, for some folks at least, it creates the need to have to use more your body adapts to it and then you need higher doses and then your doctor gets worried that you're using too much and cuts you off and so you're left with feeling horrible withdrawal symptoms and that's when people often turn to buying drugs on the street and 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 they're they're left with that horrible uh, addictive cycle that it's really difficult to break
0: Yeah, I've I've heard that story so many times, you know, that's not my story, but I've had so many guests on that have gone through that of, you know, they got hurt at work or, you know, some kind of trauma happened and they were prescribed painkillers. And then, you know, like you were saying, the dose goes up, 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 and then they get cut off and now they're buying drugs off the street and then the addiction just continues and
1: gets worse. It's interesting. I've been around in the field long enough that I remember there was a time when the doctors were told that they were underdosing patients with pain medicines, that it was the fifth cardinal symptom, that people were disabled because of terrible pain and we need to be more aggressive with using pain medicines. And so the doctors then started being more aggressive with with treating the pain meds. And what's interesting is at the time, uh, there was a uh, a longer-acting morphine that came out. People may have heard of the Sacklers in Purdue, and it was called MS-contin. And the advantage of MS-contin was it was supposed to be a a twice-a-day pain medicine. The regular morphine you had to give three, maybe four times a day. And so the doctors started prescribing the MS-contin. But what we found was that many people, instead of just using the MS-contin twice a day, they would start to get breakthrough pain after eight hours. And they had to wait for another four hours before they take the next dose. And what happened was that uh, the company would tell the doctors, if you, they get breakthrough pain and the dose keeps increasing, it's not because they're addicted to the opiates. It's because you're not giving a high enough dose to just increase the dose. As a matter of fact, there was even a term for it at the time. They called it pseudo addiction. It looks just like addiction. Patients are craving the the drugs. They're using higher doses. They have to buy it on the street. But that's not addiction. No, it's the doctors are under prescribing the opiates. So the doctors started prescribing more of them. And ultimately, we found it was causing problems. I remember uh, we did a study where we looked at... um, You know, what was the incidence of people who are prescribed opiates who wound up showing signs of addiction? And at the time when they did studies, the studies were relatively short duration, eight weeks or 12 weeks, and they found that very few people showed signs of addiction when you use the medicines over a short time and in a controlled setting. But in clinical practice, when we started looking at claims data, we found that many patients, about a third of the patients who are prescribed opiates, particularly if you're prescribed opiates over three months, started. Doctor shopping, going to have several doctors to get the prescriptions filled. The dose of the medicine started increasing, and we were concerned that maybe up to a third of the folks who were on opiates for more than three months were showing signs of addiction. And I remember showing the data. I was a consultant for Purdue at the time, and showing the data to them and saying this this could be an issue. And and some of the people at the company were very concerned. I think they presented the data to the higher ups and. I don't know what happened to the data. I know that they stopped uh, consulting with me, and some of the folks that I talked to were no longer working for the company. But we we knew kind of early on that there was some issue there. You know, maybe we needed to be more aggressive with uh, tracking it down. But now there's in the in the most recent time, the pendulum has swung. I think the other way that uh, sometimes people are so fearful of using any opiates for legitimate pain patients who have cancer patients who are in the post-op period that uh, sometimes people suffer needlessly so we need to find a, a happy balance of what's the right dose for the right person for the right time
0: yeah but i i agree like you were talking about earlier the the one is too many and a thousand's never enough like it's it's a slippery slope i've i've had those those thoughts before i mean i since i've been in recovery i've i've broken a few bones and i've I just refuse to take anything. Cause I'm like, no, I'll, I'll stick with Tylenol. You know, I don't, I don't want to go down the. I've, I've had scripts for opioids and I won't, I won't get them filled cause I, I just don't know what's going to happen. And I know me and, and one is never enough.
1: Yes. Well, that's the safest way is if you avoid getting on that cycle to begin with, that's, that's a good strategy definitely
0: a a hard topic. And I know that a lot, there's a lot of different opinions out there on it. And I've, I've attended meetings where people, where that's been the topic about prescription drugs and, you know, what, what if your doctor prescribes and, you know, there's as many of of opinions and views on it as, you know, as there can be on that. So it's, it's kind of a, a widely debated topic in the recovery community. So yeah, it's definitely, I, I don't know what the answer is. And I think it, it kind of, I think it's a decision that each person has to make on their own and, and navigate that themselves. I don't think there's one answer that fits everyone.
1: Yeah, that's right. I, I, I like to present this. And I, I think a logical way to look at it is to look at each case individually, that the doctor can talk with a, with a patient and, and understand the patient's background and concerns and work together with the patient to find the very best course of action. So being flexible, and balanced, I think is, is the right way to go that uh, don't swing too much one way or the other. Don't be so dogmatic or judgmental, but sort of be curious about what's the best strategy for a particular patient.
0: Mm, yeah. Well, I haven't, I haven't been back to that doctor since he gave me the prescription for the opioids. Cause I told him going into it, I said, Hey, I broke my fingers and I'm in recovery. So I don't want any kind of narcotics. And he didn't listen. It's like, okay, well, if you're not going to listen to what I have to say, then I'm not going to give you my money. <laughs> you know, I'll find somebody else. No, that
1: makes good sense. That doctors have to be really considerate of what the patients' needs are. Yeah, it's again, it's not just one approach is good for everyone. That you really have to be sensitive to what the patients' needs are.
0: Yeah, definitely. And we had, we had also talked about before we started recording about fentanyl and. And I've seen those same same numbers that you have, you know, the over 100,000 overdoses. And was that 2021, I assume? Or was that 2020? I can't
1: 2020, remember. 2020, yeah. Yeah, about 100,000. Yeah. Mm. So it's it, it keeps going up. It, that's the problem. I, I heard uh, data that uh, if you're under 50 years of age, you have a higher chance of dying from a uh, fentanyl overdose than dying from COVID. So yeah. it's, it's a real epidemic in this country that uh, we need to address.
0: If I'm not mistaken, I think that the drug overdose in the, in the age range of, I think it was like 18 to 30 or something has now become the number one cause of death in the United States.
1: Yeah. For that age range. Yeah. It's, you know, it's, it's a, a terrible problem and it's, you know, COVID it tends to hit older folks like myself, but uh, for younger folks, it's the drugs and, and including alcohol, alcohol, um, was responsible for about 100,000 deaths last year and that's gone up dramatically since the pandemic too. So between alcohol and opiates it's a very significant problem in, in the United States.
0: From your professional opinion and you've talked about you know the stress and, and how that plays a role in alcohol use, uh, what do you think that the pandemic and just the unrest of the world has done as far as you know alcohol dependence?
1: Yeah, clearly alcohol drinking has been increasing. Uh, since the pandemic, it's really taken off, and if my research is any indication, uh, I don't think we're going to see the end of it. Because uh, during times of stress, or when your body's under threat, your body releases these endogenous opioids, which help to moderate that a little bit. And then, as the stress is relieved a little bit, sometimes these endogenous opiates go back to normal. But your body has gotten used to it, and one way of uh, coping with that is by going out and using alcohol. That I don't know if you've ever had the sensation where uh, you have a really busy, stressful week, and uh, then the weekend comes and you just feel like sitting on a couch and eating potato chips, and the idea of having a drink at that point would really hit the spot. Your body's probably sort of in a state where you you need you're missing those opioids to get you going, and so you know we have to be really careful. But we're uh, we're hit with two major issues. One is the the need for treatment has gone up. But the people available to give treatment has not gone up. Mm. And so there's a a lot of demand and and not much treatment. And and in the treatment community, sometimes we have various uh, tribes that uh, one tribe believes you have to do it this way. Another tribe believes you have to do it that way. And instead of working together to help people with problems, we, we sort of fight each other to try and make a case that our way is the only way to get better. And It it just doesn't offer the widest net to help the people out there. I I know for alcohol use disorder, only about 10% of people have problems or in any kind of treatment, including AA. And that's terrible. There's most of the people aren't getting any treatment at all or not addressing the issue. So we need to get the word out that even if you haven't suffered the terrible consequences of addiction yet, that your drinking may start to increase a little bit, the, There's less structure in your life, so you might start drinking earlier in the day. You you find that it's creeping up that it used to be just on weekends, and now weekends are extending to Thursdays and Wednesday nights. You need to start paying attention to your drinking behavior and and some of the adverse consequences that it can cause you. So, So we need to intervene even at an earlier stage than waiting for people to necessarily hit rock bottom to have terrible consequences.
0: Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And I love that you brought up the the tribalism of recovery. I I was definitely in that same category when I first started the podcast because I had found a program and it worked for me and I've seen it work for other people. And I had that mindset of like, I found the solution. If everybody would just join this particular program, like everybody would be fine. And, you know, over, over the course of doing this podcast for now, almost two years and having hundreds of conversations, I've, I've seen the legitimacy of so many different, uh, so many different approaches, different programs, different styles of recovery. And, and I'm in that boat now of like, I don't care what you do, just do something. You know, we, we do all need to come together because like we've said, you know, over a hundred thousand people died of overdose in 2020. Like that number is is ridiculous it should not be that high we shouldn't have that many people losing their lives over overdose and we have to come together and you know do everything we can to help people and and that's part of the goal of this podcast is is you know if, if one person hears this episode and and it saves their life or it or they're able to help a friend or family member or loved one get that help that they need you know it was it was worth it you know it was worth us taking Forty-five minutes, an hour out of our Saturday morning to have this conversation and and you know help save somebody's life.
1: Yeah, I I agree with you hundred percent. And uh, I think what you're doing is fantastic and uh, getting the word out to people and and uh, it's really important to do that and to remove the stigma. So many people are fearful that uh, you know people will look badly at them if they admit that they drink too much and. It doesn't have to be that way. And there's many roads to recovery. Find the road that works best for you, but just do something. You're absolutely right. The don't don't ignore the issue. And, and there's many paths to get better. And, uh, you know, I, the recovery community and the 12-step community has been a great resource for people. Some people, that's not where they're at at this point. And uh, so if we can uh, we get them to look at their drinking a little bit more seriously and maybe start taking some steps now, we can help prevent problems down the line.
0: Yeah, definitely. So what what kind of services do you offer if people are in, in your area and are interested in, in getting some help from you?
1: Yeah. So I'm a great believer in integrating psychosocial support with with the medicines. And so people who have addiction to opiates or alcohol or, or other drugs, typically they would see a, a doctor uh, or a nurse practitioner, physician assistant, and, and get medicines to help detox, safely detox off the drugs. That's an important first step. And then after that, they'll often be uh, uh, involved with uh, maybe some ongoing medicine like uh, naltrexone, vivitrol, or buprenorphine like suboxone to help them uh, you know, cope with craving, prevent the relapse. But then in addition, we offer psychosocial services to help people get their lives back. Because for me, recovery is more than just not doing drugs. It's having some purpose in your life, having connections with people. And and that's what I find to be the most rewarding part of my job is is seeing people come in with, uh, you know, last week someone came in with a new baby. that Their life was uh, pretty much a mess before uh, they came in to see me. And they were in and out of rehabs or Jails, and now they're married and having kids and having their life together. And for me, that's that's the reward of this job. And so, the having the psychosocial support is very helpful. And and for many people, that includes uh, going to meetings and talking to a community of people in recovery, where they can feel safe and share their story. For some people, that's not part of the recovery. It's uh, you know be, being able to take the medicine and. Um, having someone to deal with other issues. Uh, probably about half our patients have problems with uh, psychological disorders, sometimes social anxiety or depression, and dealing with those issues turns out to be a really important cornerstone of the recovery. Um, right now, we're doing some research. Uh, I have to tell you about a new research study that we're doing, which is uh, this whole notion of digital therapeutics. So one of the things that in our program, we're able to provide the psychosocial support, but in many other treatment centers, you know, uh, physicians will write for the suboxone, buprenorphine, and that's all they get. They just get the, the medicine, and I don't think that really helps turn people's lives around. You know, five years later, they're still taking suboxone, and their life isn't very much better than it was before. And so, it's important, I think, to get the psychosocial support and the counseling along with the medicine even in my area, which is suburban Philadelphia, it's hard to find good therapists. And uh, in some areas, in rural areas or underserved areas, it's like almost impossible to get good good counseling. And so we've developed these uh, programs, which are on the internet that deliver psychosocial support and therapy uh, through these, uh, what's called digital therapeutics. And these are programs, which actually go through FDA testing and they have to be shown to be effective compared to treatment as usual. And they deliver mostly CBT therapy to help people learn skills to cope with craving and to um, learn to deal with life. And uh, for some people, they they find these these instruments, these programs really helpful because you can access the programs any time of the day where you have an internet connection. So if you're Have high craving at uh, four o'clock in the morning you can hop online and and get some support from your digital therapeutic and and it's a really useful adjunct to to treatment and particularly for people who can't get other psychosocial support so using technology to help people in recovery i think is going to be one of the more important waves of the future to help get people into treatment and to help engage people to to stay in treatment and get better
0: Yeah, I've I've never heard of anything like that. That's that's awesome that you guys are are working on that, and it sounds like it could be a really useful tool. Like you were saying, if it's four in the morning and nobody's really available to talk, at least you can you have this other option of of support and something to help you in those situations. That's that's awesome, man.
1: Well, thank you. Yeah, so yeah, so we're always trying to find new strategies to help people get better. We're always trying to evolve our thinking about addiction and and how to integrate the best treatment approaches. So again, we can find the the right approach for the right person at the right time, that sometimes people's needs change over time. Initially, when people come into treatment, maybe they just need medicines to help get through the detox period. So that's the a number one priority at other points. They might need strategies to help with coping with craving, to avoid high-risk situations, Maybe they need strategies to help deal with social situations without using drugs or alcohol. Over time, people may be feeling better, but they don't have any purpose in their life. And I find that people are at risk for relapse if they don't have a purpose in life, if they don't have connections with other people. And so that's a critical part of treatment. And often people can find those things through 12-step meetings or or other peer support. So again, uh, your needs can change over time and and certain people have different needs depending where they are uh so that's that's my that's our approach that's our philosophy and uh fortunately we've had pretty good luck getting people better
0: i i totally agree one of my co-hosts ashley on the on the other show that i do recovery revolution she says that the opposite of addiction is connection and and that's i feel like that's spot on
1: yeah part of you know that addictive cycle Ah, uh, begins to consume your whole life, that mm-hmm. everything revolves around the drug or getting alcohol and and then you have to hide it from other people, and so you push people away. so it's it's hard to be connected to others if you're connected to a drug or alcohol,
0: yeah, absolutely, absolutely. i can I can attest to that. You know, it was anybody that didn't agree with what I was doing, I would push as far away as I could because they were going to try to stop me from getting high. And it was like, no, this is, this is the most important thing. If you're going to mess with this, like you need to go away. If you're going to help me get high or or participate in it, you're welcome. But if you're not get away.
1: (laughs) Yes, exactly.
0: It's, it's a vicious cycle. Well, we're getting kind of towards the end of our time. Uh, if you wouldn't mind, maybe let the listeners know if, if they want to contact you, what are the ways they can find you, uh, whether that be a website, social media accounts, wherever they can can find you or get a hold of you.
1: Sure. I'm, I'm still kind of new to all the social media. I think we have some social media accounts on LinkedIn and Facebook, but our website is thevolpicellicenter.com. And, you know, if you're interested in learning more about the digital therapeutics, there's a website for that that you can go to uh, Modia, O-U-D modiaoudstudy.com, dot ycom if you want to learn about more about that study. Uh, and if you're interested, uh, the, the study is being conducted in many sites in the country. If you're in the Philadelphia area, you're certainly welcome to call us, but for other places in the country, go to that website and see if they're doing the study near you. So again, I'd be happy if people want to reach out, I'd be happy to share what I know and and, and help them in their, their journey.
0: Awesome. Well, thank you again for coming on today, taking time out of your day to come on and share with us and, and talk about some of the research that you've done and, and some of the things that you're doing for the recovery community. I really do appreciate it.
1: Thank you. And I appreciate all that you do as well.
0: Thanks. Dr. Joe, thank you again for coming on the show today. I really do appreciate it, and I'm so grateful for all the work that you're doing for the recovery community. If you guys are interested in learning more about Dr. Joe, be sure to check out the links in the show notes. You've been listening to Recovery Survey. If you got anything out of today's episode, I'd ask you to please leave us a five-star review and share this episode with a friend. If you'd like to get in contact with us, you can find us at recoverysurvey.com. You can listen to all of our episodes on the website as well as connect with us on social media where you can get previews for upcoming episodes.